So, Faye, it's getting really close to July, and so that means that there's going to be a lot of new folks coming into the hospital, and they're all going to be asking not only, oh, my God, you're the Kriags over coffee people, but also what can you read or what can you do? Yeah, definitely. One of the biggest things that I use to help me study both for um, my oral boards that are coming up, but also just in my general everyday life is actually the OBG project. Yeah, in particular for residents, they have an exclusive resource right now called the Resident Core, um, which is a comprehensive resource for education, kind of like an open source curriculum. Um, it's free to all residents. You just head on over to our website at creagsovercoffee.com or to the OBG Project website, and you can learn more and get signed up. Absolutely. And if you are a fourth year resident, if you're a rising chief, you can actually get OBG first absolutely free, which is their premium subscription process um, that allows you to create your own libraries and bookmark some of your favorite articles from the website. So again, if you're interested, head on over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com. You can check out the sidebar and find out how to get either that free year of OBG first as a chief resident or to get signed up for the resident core for every other resident out there. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. Coffee. All right, so back a long, long time ago at our 27th episode, it's kind of crazy, Faye, to think that we've been doing this for so long that we're looking back a couple of years at this point. Um, we did an episode then, though, on fetal growth restriction. Yeah, absolutely. And at that time, we had done it with one of our MFM fellows at the time when we were residents with Dr. Chris Now. It's a little bit weird to be doing this because now we're MFM fellows. So talk to me about what we're going to do today. Yeah. So for learning objectives, we're going to discuss some differences in fetal growth restriction, both the definition and management since our episode with Dr. Now, just as a testament to the facts that stuff changes all the time. So keep reading, keep listening. We'll review the screening protocols for fetal growth restriction. We'll discuss the follow-up and management of antepartum for fetal growth restriction and learn when to deliver for fetal growth restriction, all of which these things have updated just in the last couple of years. Yeah. Extra reading for today comes in the form of the SMFM consult series number 52. All right. So Faye, start us off um, with just, I guess, the vocabulary. Sure. So the biggest thing I think here is that sometimes people get a little bit confused about certain terms and what they mean. So things like, you know, what does it mean to have fetal growth restriction? What is small for gestational age? What is large for gestational age? Just to start us off, remember, estimated fetal weight is exactly that. It's estimated weight of the fetus, meaning in utero. And similarly, fetal growth restriction refers to what we believe is a low estimated fetal weight for a fetus, meaning that, again, in utero. Now, that's a little bit different from small for gestational age. I want to make that distinction. Small for gestational age actually refers to when a baby is born. So a fetus cannot be small for gestational age. A fetus can be fetally growth restricted, but a baby that is born, for example, at 39 weeks, that goes to the NICU can be small for gestational age or large for gestational age. So just a little bit of clarification there. Nick, talk to me a little bit about some etiologies for fetal growth restriction. I know we're not going to get into this too much because we talked about that, 
over 100 episodes ago, um, but also talk to me about, you know, why do we care about fetal growth restriction? Faye, you mentioned that episode again, episode 27. Folks should go back to that because we did a great job, or I should say Dr. Now did a great job kind of categorizing ideologies of fetal growth restriction into three compartments, maternal, fetal, and placental. Um, and we won't re-harken through those today, uh, but just as like a plug for that episode, and we'll link to those show notes on the website for today too. Caring about fetal growth restriction, again, it occurs in up to 10% of pregnancy and is a cause of morbidity and mortality around the world for babies. Fetuses at less than the 10th percentile at any gestational age have a risk of stillbirth of 1.5%, which is a double the rate of fetuses with normal growth. Infants with birth weights less than the 10th percentile have an increased risk of acidosis at birth, a low 5-minute APGAR score, and need for NICU admission, as well as 2 to 5 times the rate of perinatal death compared to their normal weight cohort. Again, this is a really, really important cause of perinatal morbidity mortality, so it's worth caring about. All right, so Faye, let's talk about now who actually gets considered fetally growth restricted or how we figure that out. I think the new SMF consult series number 52 does recommend that the definition of fetal growth restriction to be ultrasonographic EFW or estimated fetal weight or the abdominal circumference to be less than 10th percentile for gestational age to be the definition of fetal growth restriction. And so what that means is you need an ultrasound to tell you that a baby has fetal growth restriction. But prior to that, you probably need to have suspicion for fetal growth restriction. So screening for fetal growth restriction can be done at your routine prenatal um, appointment where you have fundal height checks, um, and also just from you know Leopold's at your prenatal appointment as well. In terms of how do you figure out what growth curves to use, right, to figure out where that fetus fits in, remember that you should be using population-based fetal growth references such as Hadlock, which is the most common one that we use in the United States in determining fetal weight percentiles. I do have to put in a caveat to this, which is that the Hadlock calculator was generated from a study of 392 pregnancies in predominantly white middle-class women at a single institute in Texas. And so many times I think some people may come and say, well, you know, I don't really fit into that demographic. So is my fetus, is my baby actually growth restricted? Or is it really just compared to this cohort of 392 pregnancies in this very specific demographic in Texas? However, there was actually a National Institute for Child Health and Development study where they developed racial and ethnic standards for fetal growth. However, when studying this growth curve compared to the Hadlock growth curve, it was found that the Hadlock still was better at predicting small for gestational age babies and composite neonatal morbidity at birth and had a lower ultrasound to birth weight percentile discrepancy than this NICHD growth standard. Um, and it was actually found that the babies that were not considered growth restricted according to the NICHD growth standard, but were considered growth restricted by Hadlock, still had poorer outcomes. So for that reason, we still use Hadlock, at least at our institutions. And remember, the Hadlock calculator is used by measuring the biparietal diameter, the head circumference, the abdominal circumference, and the femur length of the fetus. All right, Nick, the 
SMFM um, consult series actually has an interesting part of it that I think we didn't really talk about last time around, and that was about classification of fetal growth restriction. So can you talk a little bit about that and what that means? Yeah, this was really interesting, I thought. So there were kind of two categories, I guess, that this consult series proposed. One was looking at early versus late onset fetal growth restriction, and the other defined severe fetal growth restriction as a new separate category to look at. Let's talk about early versus late first. Per the SMFM consult series, we're defining early onset fetal growth restriction as onsetting prior to 32 weeks, whereas late fetal growth restriction is at or after 32 weeks. Some might ask, why does this matter? At some point, you just picked up that the baby is small, right? But early FGR tends to be more severe, tends to follow a more established Doppler pattern of fetal deterioration, and we'll talk more about Dopplers later on, um, but just know again that early FGR follows kind of a specific pattern. And early FGR can also show a more severe placental dysfunction than late onset FGR typically does. Early onset FGR can also be associated with genetic abnormalities. Um, and so therefore, early growth restricted infants should get a detailed ultrasound. The SMFM consult series also recommends potential chromosome microarray analysis if there's fetal malformation or polyhydramnios noted at the time of that detailed scan. So that does it, I think, for early versus late. Severity is the second new category, and this is defined as a fetal weight estimate at less than the third percentile. And the reason that this matter is that the less than third percentile estimated weight has been associated with increased risk of adverse perinatal outcomes irrespective of umbilical artery or MCA Dopplers, middle cerebral artery Dopplers, that is. Um, and so kind of that harkens to a potential more severe state that we may not be as good at predicting as the typical non-severe fetal growth restriction, if you will. But I think probably the majority of folks listening to the podcast want to get into the management piece. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll spend the majority of our podcast today talking about management. And remember, the reason we care about fetal growth restriction is that it is associated with stillbirth and perinatal mortality or morbidity. And so essentially, we are trying to figure out how to prevent stillbirth. And while our tests are not perfect, we are trying to do something. So we try to look for signs that the fetus or the placenta is not doing well. And we can do this by a couple of ways. One is with antenatal testing. So remember we talked about biophysical profiles, the modified biophysical profiles. You can go back and listen to one of our recent episodes. I believe it was episode 125 and we can certainly put that into our website today as well. Um, so that's one way. The second way actually in fetal growth restriction is by looking at what's called umbilical artery Dopplers. And so what are those? The umbilical artery Dopplers is an assessment of blood flow toward the placenta in the umbilical arteries of the fetus. In systole, the baby's heart pumps, and so the blood should be going forward. In diastole, that blood doesn't have the same force behind it because that's when the heart relaxes. However, the blood should still be moving forward from the fetus to the placenta. 
You might have heard when we do umbilical artery Doppler something called the SD ratio. And you might hear, you know, your senior residents or fellows or attendings talking about SD ratios. And what the SD ratio really is, is looking at the speed of the blood flow towards the placenta at systole versus diastole. And so if you think about increasing placental dysfunction or placental insufficiency, comes increasing placental resistance. And so in this case, this can actually start to affect the forward flow of blood from the umbilical arteries. In systole, that blood should always be flowing forward because you have that pump, the heart. But in diastole, without the heart as a pump behind it, the blood flow can start to slow down. And this is when we begin to see elevated SD ratios. That systolic value is still going to be the same, but the diastolic value is going to decrease. And so there are many tables that you can consult for what is normal for a particular gestational age. But generally, we believe that elevated is when it is greater than the 95th percentile for that gestational age. You can then begin to think that if there is even more resistance and more insufficiency in that placenta, then it can actually be so difficult to get blood to the placenta that blood flow actually stops during diastole. And this is when we have what's called absent and diastolic flow. In very severe cases, the resistance in the placenta is so high that the blood actually starts to flow backward towards the fetus in diastole when there's no pump behind it. And that's what is called reverse end diastolic flow. Nick, talk to me a little bit about why we care about this umbilical artery Doppler. Why do we use them? Yeah. So Faye, I think you put it really nicely in that, you know, this kind of sign of placental resistance to blood flow really gets to the crux of what these umbilical artery Dopplers are and what they do. They assess for placental dysfunction. In particular, absent and reverse end diastolic flow are associated with high rates of perinatal mortality. One study demonstrated an odds ratio for fetal death of 3.59 for absent end diastolic flow and 7.27 for reverse end diastolic flow. So that means three and a half and seven fold the odds of fetal death with absent or reverse end diastolic flow versus a normal Doppler. So again, it's a really helpful diagnostic sign in terms of figuring out what to do next. So I guess what do we do with these umbilical artery Dopplers is a great question, or how do we do them? When do we do them? Once you've diagnosed fetal growth restriction, you should serially assess umbilical artery Dopplers. And this will be institution dependent to some degree, um, but generally you're doing it at least every one to two weeks. If the umbilical artery Dopplers become elevated, um, then your institution will likely start assessing them more frequently. And again, everybody has a little bit of a difference here, but usually at that point you're doing at least weekly assessment, if not twice weekly assessment. The SMFM series also recommends assessment of Dopplers two to three times a week when umbilical artery Dopplers become absent to ultimately assess for reverse end diastolic flow. And Faye, I don't know about you, but kind of in my experience, when a fetus becomes absent end diastolic flow on umbilical artery Dopplers, that often ends up being an indication for hospital admission because we're doing so many assessments and so frequently. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true for a lot of places. And the consult series, you know, we're going to talk about this in the next step. So that's a great transition because I think the next question, of course, is when do I deliver my patient? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess I sort of skipped over, jumped straight to it, but why don't you take it, Faye? 
So again, this is probably a little bit institution dependent because I don't think everyone has adopted um, the recommendations from this consult series. But um, in this consult series, they recommend that if there is uncomplicated fetal growth restriction, which really means fetal growth restriction that is at or greater than the third percentile with normal umbilical artery Dopplers, then they recommend serial growth scans about every three to four weeks. They recommend weekly or even every two-week umbilical artery Dopplers and weekly or in some places twice a week antenatal testing and then delivery between 38 to 39 weeks. At our institution, for example, we tend towards closer to the 39th week mark. Then if there is fetal growth restriction, but it's less than the third percentile with normal UA Dopplers, you kind of follow that same formula of serial growth scans, umbilical artery Doppler assessment, and antenatal testing, but actually delivery is recommended at 37 weeks. So Nick, talk to me a little bit more about, you know, what happens when those umbilical artery Dopplers begin to become elevated? What happens then? At this point, again, elevated SD ratios implying decreased but still forward in diastolic flow. Ultimately, we'll get you to weekly Dopplers, though some institutions will start twice weekly Dopplers at this point. Growth scans should be occurring every two to four weeks, again, often institution dependent. Twice a week antenatal testing through typically NST or modified BPP is performed at this point, and then delivery by 37 weeks. From there, you go towards absent end diastolic flow, and with this, many institutions will increase to two to three times weekly Dopplers. We'll discuss corticosteroids for fetal lung maturity if they haven't been administered at that point. Still continue antenatal testing at least twice a week if the patient remains outpatient. You can consider up to every two-week growth scans at this point. And then per the SMFM consult series, they recommend delivery at 33 to 34 weeks, um, and even consideration of cesarean delivery outright. Um, and I think that harkens to sort of the placental dysfunction that's present with absent end diastolic flow. That finally gets us to reverse end diastolic flow, which again, as we mentioned earlier, has the highest risk for stillbirth overall. This, without question, merits an inpatient admission. Um, also, without question, merits corticosteroids if they haven't been given already. Um, again, since these patients will be inpatient, you should be doing at least once to twice a day antenatal testing with NSTs. Um, you can consider every two-week growth scans at this point, every two, three weeks, depending on your institution. And then with reverse end diastolic flow, you know, the consult series phase says delivery at 30 to 32 weeks in consideration for cesarean delivery. I feel like there's a lot of the art of medicine in play when dealing with reverse end diastolic flow, because I feel like these typically are the ones that are like 27 weeks, early onset, a lot of really funky stuff going on, um, and it's trying to balance that how long can we wait while not encountering a stillbirth. Right, absolutely. And I think the biggest impact there is you have this severely growth-restricted baby that is 27 weeks, maybe still less than the 400 grams. And so if you're delivering at, at 27 weeks and you have reverse end diastolic flow in a tiny baby, really how much can the NICU actually do for that baby mm -hmm. versus risking stillbirth, right? So definitely, I agree with you. There's a lot of art of medicine to that. All right. Well, I think that does it for our update on fetal growth restriction. Faye, why don't we try to summarize? 
Sure. So we first started off this episode by talking a little bit about some of the terminology that we use. We discussed the differences between fetal growth restriction and SGA. So remember, fetal growth restriction, of course, refers to growth restriction in utero for the fetus, whereas small for gestational age or terms like large for gestational age actually refer to the baby when they are delivered. We didn't go into the etiologies of fetal growth restriction very much because we thought that Dr. Now covered that really well in um, our previous episode, in episode 27. Um, But just understand that the etiologies of fetal growth restriction can range from maternal, fetal, and placental disorders, or maybe all three of those combined. We care about fetal growth restriction because it's fairly common, again, at least 10% of pregnancies, and it's a leading cause of fetal and infant morbidity and mortality around the world. Fetuses at less than the 10th percentile at any gestational age have a double the rate of stillbirth compared to fetuses with normal growth, and infants that are less than the 10th percentile for their birth weight have an increased risk of acidosis, low five-minute APGAR score, need for NICU admission, and two to five times the rate of perinatal death. According to SMFM, those that are considered fetally growth-restricted should be defined by ultrasonographic EFW or um, the AC that is less than the 10th percentile for that gestational age. Again, this should be calculated using population-based calculators, things like Hadlock, which have been shown to be more effective than other types of calculators that are race or ethnicity-based. And finally, we talked a little bit more about the classifications of fetal growth restriction, so looking at early versus late fetal growth restriction, mostly because with early fetal growth restriction, we know that this tends to be more severe, tends to follow that established Doppler pattern of fetal deterioration and can also show more severe placental dysfunction and may also be associated more closely with genetic abnormalities. We also discussed severity of fetal growth restriction and noting that EFW of less than the third percentile has been associated with an increased risk of adverse perinatal outcomes. With respect to the management of fetal growth restriction, again, we care because of the association with stillbirth and risk of perinatal morbidity and mortality. We ultimately will use some sort of antenatal testing, but classically associated with fetal growth restriction are umbilical artery dopplers. Again, this is an ultrasound assessment of the blood flow towards the placenta and the umbilical arteries, where we look at the forward flow of blood in systole and what we expect to be the forward but relatively decreased forward flow in diastole. Over time, you can see a decrease in this where Either the ratio of diastolic forward flow decreases and blood flow becomes elevated, it stops entirely and becomes absent, or blood flow reverses entirely and heads back towards the fetus away from the placenta and diastole, in which case that's reversed and diastolic flow. In terms of things to do about fetal growth restriction and how to manage, it really depends on your institution Generally, according to the SMFF consult series, what you should do with fetal growth restriction that is at or greater than the third percentile with normal UA Dopplers is to continue serial growth scans every three to four weeks, continue umbilical artery Doppler assessment serially, usually every week to every two weeks, and then weekly or twice a week antenatal testing with delivery by the 39th week. However, if fetal growth restriction is less than the third percentile with normal Dopplers, then you follow the same formula, but then deliver at 37 weeks. With elevated SD ratios, meaning again that decrease end diastolic flow, you would continue weekly Dopplers, though some institutes will do this twice a week to try and detect change in the Dopplers to absent or reversed, continue Q2 to four week growth scans, twice weekly antenatal testing, and then delivery at 37 weeks. However, if 
the diastolic flow becomes absent, then usually this would um, lead to an increase in the Doppler assessments every two to three weeks, again, to detect for when they become reversed. You should probably discuss with your patients corticosteroids for fetal lung maturity and possibly even admission to the hospital. But if they desire to stay outpatient, then consider twice a week antenatal testing, increasing the number of growth scans to possibly every two weeks. So there are still some institutes that would do three to four weeks and then consider delivery by three, 33 to 34 weeks and maybe even, even doing a cesarean delivery outright because of that placental insufficiency. And finally, with reversed and diastolic flow, which is associated with the highest risk for stillbirth, you would consider inpatient admission, corticosteroids again, and maybe even daily or twice daily daily antenatal testing if they are inpatient. And again, consider spacing your growth scans a little bit closer together to every two weeks and even consider delivery at 30 to 32 weeks. And again, consider outright cesarean section. But as Nick put it, sometimes with reverse and diastolic flow, it's really an art of medicine trying to juggle when it is that that baby could survive outside of the uterus um, versus juggling stillbirth. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee One, on Facebook and Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee. And if you want to donate to the show, you can go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Coffee. You can find show notes for this episode, including a link to our past fuel growth restriction episode, um, as well as all of our prior episodes on our website, creogsovercoffee.com. If you have questions for us or suggestions for new episodes or even corrections for our shows, send us an email, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.